I know that this is the most understanding group, and you would have to be to have two Texans on the same podium. Bob and I are both from Texas, and I'd like to turn over to Bob and give him all the time possible. He says he'll try to get through by dark tonight. Thank you, Mel. I think you all be glad to know that I've got a watch, and I can see it. <laughs> I certainly want to thank all the committee that has done such a super job in seeing that we who come in to be with you and share with you at this time are, are taken care of. We're not uh, lonely or, you know, dumped off in a hotel room and forgotten. You've, you've done everything that is possible to make our stay here. And also, I was talking to Jim and Vinoy about this. Said, you, when you stand up here, you can feel the love coming this way. And that means so much to us who happen to be here to share with you. We can feel it coming this way. And for you being here today, thank you. I am truly grateful. My name is Bob Smith, and I'm an enthusiastic Al-Anon. <clears throat> I belong to the uh, Montague County Al-Anon family group. Meets Tuesday nights at 8 o'clock in Bowie, Texas. I live in a little town called Nocona, Texas, and I can tell by the look on your face that it's not a household word. <laughs> People ask me, well, what's it near? It's not near anything. <laughs> it's 2,992 people, and it's always been 2,992 people. <laughs> Whenever a new child's born, somebody leaves town. <laughs> I brought my bathing suit like, like the rest of the speakers. I still have high hopes. <laughs> but it is a gorgeous, gorgeous area, and, and I'm so appreciative to get to go out and then, uh, see the places and eat some of the delicious seafood. Uh, where I live, it's uh, a little bit different. It's kind of life in the slow lane, you know. We had a, tor a total power blackout last Saturday night at 9 o'clock, and nobody knew it till they read about it in the weekly paper. <laughs> And last year we got the effects of some of the hurricanes that played up and down the coast here. You know, they finally get up to where we live. And we, have, we suffered the uh, sustained high winds also. And when it was over, we assessed the results of these terrible, terrible winds. And you know, it had done over $20,000 worth of improvements. <laughs> I want to qualify myself to you as an Al-Anon. I, I, this is important to me. I'm the son of an alcoholic, the son-in-law of an alcoholic, the ex-brother-in-law of an alcoholic, and I love an alcoholic. My current wife, my present wife, the incumbent, <coughs> I say this because it seems to get me a little additional respect, is a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and she's been sober for seven years, eight months, and two days, and for that, believe me, I am truly grateful. <laughs> I want to congratulate you on your selection of speakers up till now. <laughs> I've had a wonderful time with them. And you know, I was thinking as Tom spoke this morning, almost to the hour, a week ago, I was walking into the Cofield unit of the Texas Department of Corrections prison system. 
Now, the Cofield unit houses 4,000 inmates in one clump. And these are the guys that are violent. You know, they're not in there for double parking. They have an AA program. And 80% of the people that are committed to that institution in the Texas Department system are in there for drug or alcohol committed offenses. 80% of these guys. And what makes me so grateful to see you here today, as I was walking in that building, the visiting hours were, were coming to a close and there was a little young lady, simply dressed, pretty little girl. And she had, she was holding the hand of a little boy and he was a little bit younger than this little girl, Kristen, that I've seen that belongs to some friends of mine here. And she was pulling him along and he was holding back with all of his might and he was screaming, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. Now, if that won't break your heart, if that won't break your heart, I don't know why that guy was in there, but chances are eight out of ten he'd done something that was involved with booze or drugs. And later on I went into the, what they call the Walls Unit. The next day I went into the Walls Unit of the Texas Department of Corrections. And, and I want to tell you I like to do this because I don't know whether I do those guys any good or not. But I feel a special, special empathy with them. Because they're coming from absolutely nothing. And fortunately they have an AA program in there. And it's due to the courtesy of people like Tom who are the wardens that allow the program to come in there. And they asked me to come in to be the speaker at their 38th AA anniversary in this Walls Unit prison. And it's called Walls Unit because it's got the walls. It's like the old time prisons with the huge high walls completely surrounding it. Well, there was, the room was totally full of these, uh, what they call men in white, the inmates. But also at this occasion, since it was their 38th anniversary, they had allowed and invited people from what they call the free world to come in and share with their program. So there's a young guy I'm seeing it, uh, kind of like Dan. He was an outgoing sort of guy. I got to talking to him. He's a graduate of the University of Texas. His father owned a successful business in downtown Dallas, and I knew where it was. He got up and identified himself as an alcoholic addict, an unemployed drug dealer. 32 years old and he was serving 60 years 60 years and when these people uh, he got out he asked the uh, people in the free world he said how many of you that are here today have been in prison and about half of them stood up and he said now I know you're all alcoholics what I would like to know is how many of you here today could have been in prison and the other half stood up. And so you see, that's why I'm so thankful that you are here, that we are here today together because there but for the grace of God. My wife, uh, I want to tell you a little bit about my family. My wife came into AA seven years and eight months and two days ago, as I told you. And she took off with this program running. And I want you to understand that Betty and I had drank together many, many years. I'm talking about like 30 years. We liked to party. We liked to play. We liked to dance. We may have even been in some of the same places that Benoit was in. I don't know. But 
you know, we were that kind of people. <clears throat> but it was beginning to kind of show the seamy side. You know, you begin to, it's kind of like a carpet that's wearing out. You begin to see the, the uh, threads that are destroying the fun and games. And we begin to see the arguments that were uh, starting among our friends. And it wasn't that much fun anymore. Now, I never asked my wife to stop drinking. I asked her to quit getting so damn drunk. You know, I had a job and I had to work. And if we were invited out, I'd say, okay, Betty, now, two drinks tonight and no more. She promised me, two drinks. And I would watch her like a flute player watching a cobra. And she'd have two drinks and she'd be loaded. Well, what I didn't know, I think some of you are ahead of me. <laughs> what I didn't know was that during the day she was getting a little head start <laughs> because she knew she was going to be severely rationed that night. And uh, so uh, by the time we got ready to go out, she was ready for two drinks and no more. <clears throat> well, now, you see, my father was a recovering alcoholic. Betty's father was a recovering alcoholic. You'd think if there was ever two human beings that should have known how to recognize alcoholism in their home, it should have been us. But you know, pre-knowledge availed us absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. We knew it was there. Our folks were going to this uh, program. It was nice. But you see, we had no, no particular interest in it. And the knowledge didn't, uh, didn't come through to us. And it's, it's hard to admit it, but apparently that's the nature of the things that happen. I'll tell you a little bit about my childhood. I was raised in a very, very normal alcoholic home. <laughs> and I'd like to know how many of you here were raised in an alcoholic home, like I was. Okay? Quite a few, quite a, quite a few of you. And I'm going to tell you about uh, some of the things that uh, I reacted to, how I reacted. I hated the poverty. I used to think if I could just have a quarter to go down with the other kids in the high school to have a milkshake once in a while, wouldn't it be great? But we were so poor because alcoholism had reduced us to a stage of absolute poverty. And I resented that. I didn't like the fact that I could never have my friends in the house because you never knew what the situation was going to be. So I, uh, the way I did it, I escaped. You honked the horn, I hit the door and I was gone and I stayed as long as I possibly could. That was the way I reacted. I didn't discuss my father's alcoholism with anybody. The only time we ever talked about it was with my mother and my sister and I in the house. So these are the things I think that happened when you're raised in that kind of an environment. But I want to tell you something, and I firmly believe this, and I hope you'll understand when I say, I do not plan to be perpetually frozen in a mode as a adolescent child of an alcoholic. I do not plan, and it's not necessary for me to be forever in the act of being a hurt adolescent. Okay? Now, I, I want to say this to you. I think that the knowledge that I was raised in an alcoholic home is a plus for me because for this reason, you see, 
I didn't know what normal was. It's that simple. I did not know what normal is. If you've never seen normal, how do you know what it is? Okay, it just may, has made me realize since I've come into the Al-Anon program that I have a little more difficulty recognizing normal than some other people. I have to do a little additional learning to find out what normal really is. And also, it made it a lot easier for alcoholism to slip into my own home, unobserved, unnoticed. Because again, abnormal with me could be normal. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, okay. Well, thanks to this program, my, my wife, bless her heart, and you know, uh, I'm not as, I haven't been married as long as, as Bill, but I have had the same bride for 42 years. So uh, we're kind of long timers in this marriage deal. And I want to tell you one little secret that might be helpful. We had a we had a pact, and I'll tell you what it was. The first one that left got the kids. <laughs> now that'll see you through some rough ones, folks. But anyway, Betty took off with this AA program, and I began to see that she was learning some things that I wanted to know. You see, one reason I'm so grateful to the al program is because it's teaching me things I wasn't smart enough to figure out for myself, a way of life it never would have occurred to me. But anyway, she began learning these things, so somebody said to me, <clears throat> why don't you go to al -Anon? Well, now, I didn't have the barrier, you know, that perhaps some of you had, because I knew the AAs were, were nice people when sober. And uh, so that wasn't a particular big barrier for me. And I, so I went over and I thought, why not join the auxiliary? <laughs> so I went over to my first Al-Anon meeting in Gainesville, Texas. If you will, the rock that's been holding this family together. Maybe a few little character defects, but, you know, nothing. Uh, maybe a week or so wouldn't straighten out. Just enough knowledge about alcoholism to be absolutely dangerous. And I walk in, and I'm the only man. And I began to get mixed emotions about this program, Al-Anon. Mixed emotions, I think, is kind of like when you're teenage daughter comes in at four in the morning with a Gideon Bible under her arm. <laughs> but I want to tell you folks, I stayed because I saw the compassion and the love and the friendship that these ladies had for each other and they were willing to share it with me. And you know, I got to admit this too. It was kind of fun. I felt like the herd bull. <laughs> and then another guy came in and I got a resentment. <laughs> but anyway, I began to want to, to do this program. So I started working my program, and I think, for me at least, there's four things that I must do to be an Al-Anon. Okay? I've got to work the steps. I've got to abide by the traditions. I've got to attend meetings regularly, and I have to have a sponsor. And I do all four of these things. Now, my sponsor, as some of you know, is a lady, and she is a conference-approved Al-Anon. <laughs> 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 
When I first came in, the only guy I saw was a, was a man about the age of my son, and I didn't think we had too much gold. So I picked out this lady who is, uh, I hope she's not within earshot, is a little older than I, and asked her to be my sponsor, and she said, well, I never did sponsor a man, but said, I'll try it, and if I don't like it, I'll let you know. Now, I realize, and I think that uh, this is important, that probably it was, it was much better if you pick a, a sponsor of the same sex. But surely you realize that by looking at me that this sex thing does not loom nearly as large on the horizon as it used to. <laughs> now, don't misunderstand me. I love to see uh, you beautiful ladies, but I can't remember why. <laughs> But anyway, this program has been a lifesaver for us. We, we work our program together. I don't drink anymore, and I'll tell you why. Because I want two reasons. I want my wife to be more comfortable in her sobriety. Okay? And the second reason is I want us to operate on the same plane. Now, I don't, I'm not trying to tell you how you work your program. Please believe me. I'm just telling you how I do it. So I don't drink anymore. And uh, it works better for us because we've got our program. We're operating on the same plane. We like to go. You know, I attend an open AA meeting once a week, and occasionally she'll come to one of my Al-Anon meetings or she'll go to a closed AA meeting. But that's the way we're working our program. And it's working out beautifully for us because, you know, it's not just all, you know, instant bliss, believe me, because we're finding out that we had some very, very deep resentments towards each other deep resentments after sobriety but we're working these things out we're working them out and before we weren't even communicating we were just two strangers living in the same house two strangers and it got so bad that my mother-in-law bless her heart says why don't you ask her for a divorce she said that'll shock her and I thought man that's a great idea so I approached the subject and I mentioned it you know, she wasn't nearly as shocked as I thought she was going to be. <laughs> and the reason was because she was an alcoholic. She had the disease of alcoholism, and the alcohol had taken the number one priority in her life. She had to do it. The family moved down the scale. It wasn't because she wanted to. It was because she had to. And I didn't understand that until I'd been in the Al-Anon program sometime and I stay with the program and I want to tell you something I heard a lady from uh, New Mexico say this and I just got to tell you this this was one of the things that hit me right between the eyes she was an AA alcoholic and I don't know where she got this but she was telling the group said the person I was will drink again boy I tell you my wife grabbed me and I grabbed her and I thought, gee, the person I was will drink again. And I got to thinking about that with reference to the Al-Anon program. And I thought, it applies here too. The person I was will sicken again. The person I was will sicken again. I had an Al-Anon buddy and he and I went to meetings. We went to... Uh, conferences and so forth together. We were real close friends. And I thought this guy really had it together. I had marred his Al-Anon program. 
Yeah, I looked up to it. He was doing a lot better at it than I, and I always could count on Ray. But you know, in recent months, he's turned his back on the program, and I see him reverting back to the man he said he was before he started. And I think, although it's painful to see, and it's certainly painful to him, I think that maybe my higher power arranged this to tell me something, that it's necessary that I take the time and the effort to maintain my program because it is so vital to me. I love the way of life. It is so vital to me because I know that the person I was will sicken again. Well, a lot of nice things happen to us, you know, with sobriety. <clears throat> For instance, we put carpet in our bathroom this year. <laughs> yeah. You know how good that feels on your feet in these cold mornings? And we like it so well, we're thinking about running it on into the house. <laughs> okay, now I'm going to switch and I'm going to tell you a little something a little bit different. I'm going back in time to my memory to tell you a little bit about what I consider to be a series of miracles that brought us all here today. A series of miracles that brought us all here today. On Mother's Day in 1935 in Akron, Ohio, I rode out with my father and mother to the home of Henrietta Cyberling to meet a man by the name of Bill. And I'm the only one that's still living that was present when the two co-founders of Alcoholics met for the first time on Mother's Day in Akron, Ohio in 1935. My father is Dr. Bob and my mother's Ann. And as my father had had, had a terrible hangover. He'd come home Mother's Day and put a potted plant on the, on the table. He was potted. He went right on up to bed, you know, as was his custom. It was always that way in our house. Uh, Dad was drunk and Mother was crying. But Henrietta called and said, uh, she was a friend of my mother. She said, Ann, there's a man here that thinks that he might be able to help Bob. Bring him right on out. And her mother had said, Henrietta, he's in no shape to go anywhere. She said, but I'll get him out there tomorrow. So at my mother's insistence, when my father gets up the next day, you know, and he has a terrible hangover in his he says, 15 minutes of this guy is all I want. Mother said, okay. So we rode on out there. Well, it wasn't 15 minutes. It was many hours that those two guys talked. I don't know what they talked about. They went out in the room by themselves. But again, at my mother's insistence, Bill came and lived at our home for three months. And this is the time that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous was started. This is the time and this is the place. Now, I want to tell you about the times. It was right in the middle of what they call the Great Depression. And uh, we lived in a one-industry town, Akron, Ohio. The, the rubber factories were all there. The Goodyear, Goodrich, General, Firestone, Cyberly. Well, when people quit buying automobiles, they quit buying tires. And economically, that town fell flat on its face. There were strong men on the street corner selling apples for five cents each just to get a little money. And that's the condition. 
We lived in a very, very modest frame home, and I think I can describe it in terms that you all will understand. Those of you that have never seen it, it looked like Archie Bunker's house. <clears throat> and we would have lost that if it hadn't been for the mortgage moratorium declared by President Roosevelt in 1933, whereby people like us who are no longer able to make the payments on their homes were still allowed to stay in them. And you wouldn't be thrown out in the streets because times were so terribly, terribly hard then. So we were allowed to stay in that modest home even though we couldn't make the mortgage payments. And my father only owed $1,000 on the house. It only cost 4000 to start with. Okay, now that home, Tom knows this, has been uh, bought by a nonprofit organization called Founders Foundation. They're restoring it back to its original state. I've been in it. They're doing a beautiful job. I went in it last year for the first time since my father's funeral in 1950. And you know the rooms are a lot smaller than I remember them being. <laughs> yeah. But anyhow, I'm glad to see this, and I'll tell you why. My sister, after my parents were dead, my sister took the house, and she uh, used it as a rent house for a while. And then she sold it, and it became a rental property, and it was kind of running down, you know. And, the, and uh, there were people that were interested in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they had a little tour there in Akron, you know. Take you around to Henry the Cyberling's house and the old King School where they held the first AA meetings after they left our home and T. Henry Williams' place where they had the Oxford group meetings and Dr. Bob's home. And at the uh, time, some of these guys were these AAs and their uh, lovely wives and sweethearts were coming by. It was rented to a bunch of hippie-looking guys. And they were out in the front yard drinking beer and flipping everybody a bird that came by. <laughs> now, some of you older people may not know what flipping a bird is, but uh, I know the young ones do. I had to ask my son. <laughs> So anyway, this thing's been taken over and it is now available. It doesn't cost anything to go in it and you're welcome whenever you can do it. And if you ever get up that way why, and are interested in history, why go by and, and see it. They have a nice little presentation there. Now, so, uh, and I want to tell you something. Somebody uh, called this to my attention. From the sidewalk to the porch of that old home in Akron, Ohio, are 12 steps. Another one of those little uh, coincidences that you begin to notice in the program, these little coincidences. I'll tell you a little, I want to tell you about my father, Dr. Bob. He was a, a Vermonter from St. Johnsbury. He was tall and thin, and he had icy blue eyes, you know, those real light blue eyes that could just look right through you. He was a graduate of Dartmouth, one of the Ivy League colleges back there, kind of known as the uh, Drinker's College. And, of course, he was uh, fit right into the organization. And he went out and he worked in industry for a couple of years. He worked for uh, Fairbanks Morse, the people that make uh, engines and scales and so forth. Mm -hmm. And then he went to work at Filene's department store in Boston and worked there for a while and came back to his father, who was the probate judge there in St. Johnsbury, and prevailed upon uh, old Judge Smith to allow him to go to medical school. And he went to Chicago and went to... Northwestern in Cook County Medical School, and finally barely managed to graduate because his drinking, like everyone else's, was progressive. And I think they kind of allowed him to graduate, you know, if he promised not to come back. But anyway, he managed to obtain a coveted internship, and it was coveted because 
at City Hospital there in Akron, they had some advanced equipment. And uh, he moved there and married my mother after a whirlwind courtship of only 17 years. <laughs> I point this out to you is that uh, Dr. Bob thought things over carefully before he spoke. Now, he, you know, he, he, didn't, uh, he wasn't a very uh, garrulous sort of guy. He, he was quiet, steady. Bill, you know, our other co-founder, a great guy, was also a Vermonter. He was uh, born 100 miles from the place my father was. And uh, I remember when they first got together there in Akron, some of the natives said, uh, the early AA said, those two slicker Yankees have come down here to, to, to take us. They know each other and so forth, but they didn't. But they were just exactly the opposite. Bill was garrulous. He loved people. He liked to talk to people, you know. He was... Uh, a promoter. Bill was a visionary. Bill could see further up the road than any human I've ever known. He was a visionary. Bill's mood swung, you know. He was high as a tree, a Georgia pine, or low as a snake. You know, he was like this. But my father went along on a pretty much of an even keel, and these two guys fit together perfectly. They never had an argument. And I think that this was, again, one of these miracles that was starting to happen. Because, you know, if any two of us are exactly alike, one of us is unnecessary. <laughs> well, Dr. Bob was a uh, man's man. He, he could uh, sustain himself in the woods, and he'd like to do those sort of things. He'd go up into the woods of Maine and just live off the land. He could do that sort of thing. He was a gentleman. He was very courteous, and people uh, liked to be around him. Women were comfortable with Dr. Bob because it was very obviously that he obvious that he dearly loved my mother. He liked to use slang, and I don't. I'm not talking about the cussin type slang, just the language of the day. But you know, I, I my sister and I used to test him at the dinner table, and every time we made a grammatical error to see what his reaction was, and he never failed to correct us, you know, in a nice sort of way, but always corrected us. And I don't—I haven't noticed this so much in the Al-Anons, but <coughs> Dr. Bob had a tattoo, and I've noticed that uh, quite a few of the alcoholics have tattoos. And Dr. Bob had one that was uh, his, his was, on his left arm was a it was a dragon, and it started at his shoulder and it went all the way down and wound down around to his wrist, and I, it was kind of an embarrassment to him because Dr. Bob did a lot of surgery. And I said, my golly, Dad, how did you get that? And he said, boy, that was a dandy. <laughs> you know, he went back to uh, uh, Mayo Brothers Clinic in uh, Rochester, Minnesota, and studied to be a, a surgeon and uh, did the same sort of work that Dan did, eye, ear, nose, and throat. <laughs> Have I got the wrong end? <laughs> But anyway, and he had a gorgeous sense of humor. He loved any kind of humor, even puns, you know, and we loved to pour all these things on each other. And when I brought Betty home, my wife-to-be, for the folks to look over, why, uh, he got me aside. Betty was tall and thin, you know, and uh, he got me aside and said, she's built for speed and light housekeeping. <laughs> and I don't think I'll offend you. I want to tell you what his sex and hygiene lecture to me was. Yeah, I want you to understand that I was a teenager, you see, at the time this program started, and Dr. Bob got me up in the bathroom, 
and closed the door like fathers do. And I thought, boy, I'm going to find out all about it now, what I didn't know. And uh, we sat down, and he said, flies spread disease, keep yours buttoned. <laughs> But anyway, as I told you, uh, alcohol had reduced us to a state of absolute poverty. Some nights we had nothing except potato soup. I think I've had enough potato soup to perhaps float this building. But that was the way the times were, and that's uh, what we had, and that's what we lived with. And when Bill came to live with us, we had nothing. Bill had nothing. Bill didn't have a job. Lois, our co-founder of Alnon, came down at my mother's request again and visited with us caught the bus, rode it down from New York, and we met, and, and we uh, loved each other, and we still do. And Lois had to uh, catch the bus and go back, because you got to understand, she was the only one that had a job. Okay? And this is the time that this miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous started. And if there's some of you that are new, and I know there are, I've met some of you that are coming to your first conference, and may I interject a special welcome to you. You'll never forget your first one and feel perhaps like you're coming from nothing. Just think about the movement that you're now embarking on. It started in my lifetime from absolutely nothing to what it is today. Well, Bill and Dr. Bob decided that what they needed was a good alcoholic to work on. So uh, it was providentially arranged that one came by and the person of Eddie R. Uh, Eddie was a young guy, had a cute little blonde wife and two little kids, and they'd just been thrown out of their home for non-payment of rent. So the thing to do was to move them into our modest home, the whole shebang, <coughs> locked Eddie in one of the upstairs bedrooms, where he'd be available, you know, as Dr. Bob uh, tried to stay a page ahead. You know, there was nothing written, nothing. They were just trying to get the idea. But Eddie was an agile guy. And we had downspouts, and Eddie would open the second-story window, slide down the downspouts, and escape. And they'd have to recapture Eddie. <laughs> One time, Eddie got as far as Cleveland, Ohio, 35 miles away, and called him up, collect, I'm sure, and announced that he was going to commit suicide, but that he would give them time to get up there to witness the event. <laughs> Well, they brought Eddie back. And when they got Eddie sober, he had some other little characteristics that hadn't shown up while he was still groggy or drunk. He had some mental problems. And he started chasing my mother around the house with a butcher knife. And, of course, she feared for her life. And so it was decided that the thing to do with Eddie was for his little wife to take him back to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and recommit him in a mental institution. And that was done. And Dr. Bob and Bill were crestfallen. First trial, total failure. But I want to tell you something. At my father's funeral, 15 years later, in 1950, a guy walked up to me and he said, Do you know me? And I said, Yeah, I know you. You're Eddie. And he said, That's right. And he says, I'm a member of the Youngstown, Ohio AA group, and I've been sober for a year. And I... 
I tell you this because I think if you think that your 12-step work was a total failure, that the person you talked to or tried to help absolutely, totally unresponsive, went in one ear and out the other, think about Eddie. Remember Eddie. You know, we're only called on to carry the message. That's all we're called on to do is just carry the message. God will take care of the rest. Okay? We're not uh, called on to carry the alcoholic or Al-Anon. We're just called on to carry the message. And I, I listen, I met uh, Eddie's uh, secretary, Lady Ben Eddie's secretary, last year in, in Akron, and she said Eddie was sober for the balance of his life. Eddie's dead now. But he never took another drink as long as he lived. So there was the first try. Thought it was a failure. Well, the, the first successful one was an attorney by the name of uh, Bill D. Now, I want you to understand that my mother supported these guys in this movement. She was the one that never lost her faith. She was the one that would call up the wives and sweethearts of these prospective AAs. She was the one who made up the beds, did the cooking, cleaned up the messes, maintained the communication, went to the meetings, sat in the back to greet the newcomers because the first AA meetings were all open, all open meetings. And then the guys kind of got off by themselves and the women got to, uh, you know, fix the coffee and they'd have a few donuts if they had enough dough. And uh, that's the way it was. So the women were kind of second-rate citizens, but my mother, who was a lovely, lovely lady and not very many people know much about him, but even Bill himself said, Ann Smith is the mother of AA. This was a, a wonderful lady. You'd have loved her. She was a graduate of Wellesley College, one of the fine uh, girls' colleges in the East. She went there on a scholarship. She was no dummy. Her great uncle was president of the Santa Fe Railroad. And used to, in those days, the uh, president of the railroad had his own car, and he could tie onto anybody's train. You know, and go anywhere the rails went in the U.S. and Canada. And he took a liking to my mother. And he took her around on these trips with him. And she learned the nicer things of life. And she had led a very, very sheltered life. She was very, very easily shocked until AA. <laughs> Bless her heart. <laughs> she took up smoking when she was 50. <laughs> I said, Mom, you're not going to start that now, are you? And she said, well, if you wait till you're 50, I won't say anything. <laughs> but anyway, she recognized that Al-Anon was needed. Not per se, but the fact that alcoholism was a family disease. <clears throat> and I'd like to excerpt for you a letter. This was written to Bill, our co-founder, by Henrietta Dotson, the wife of the first successful AA. Okay? And I want to read this letter to you. <clears throat> and I'll skip some of it. I'll excerpt it. On Friday, June 28, 1935, I met Ann Smith. I met Dr. Bob on Thursday morning in the hospital. On Thursday evening when I went to the hospital to see my husband, Dr. Bob, was there, and he said, the little woman would like to, you to come over to the house. I told him I could not go that night, but would go the next night. On Friday night, when I went to the house on Ardmore Avenue, I met the most thoughtful, understanding person I've ever known. After talking with her for a while, I addressed her as Mrs. Smith, and she said, Anne, to you, my dear. She wanted to remove all barriers. 
Bill W. was there at the time. Dan told me to surrender myself to God and ask him if he had a plan for me to reveal it to me. Ann taught me to have a quiet time in the morning that I might feel near to God and receive strength for the day. She taught me to surrender my husband to God and not to try and tell him how to stay sober, as I had tried that and failed. Ann taught me to love everyone. She said, ask yourself what is wrong with me today if I don't love you. She said, the love of God is triangular. It must flow from God through me, through you, and back to God. She told me I should never criticize the remarks of the person leading the meeting as we do not know God's plan. Maybe what that person says will meet the need of someone in the group. And I'll bet you every one of us here has experienced that one. Okay? In the early part of 1936, Ann organized a woman's group <clears throat> for wives of alcoholics whereby in her loving way she tried to teach us patience, love, and unselfishness. Anne made it very plain to me from the beginning that she wanted no credit for herself. It was God. All she wanted was to keep herself so she could know and follow God's plan. When I met and talked to this intelligent, deeply spiritual woman, I was completely sold on A.A. Henrietta Dodson. So you see, the need for the family to involve was recognized even back in those times, and it was up to Lois to uh, formalize it in, into our, our Al-Anon program as, as we know it. Well, I told you that they began uh, treating these alcoholics in our modest home. Dr. Bob was the only medical man associated with the movement at the time. so. What they would do, and I want you to understand, hospital beds were very expensive, $16 a day. I think they've gone up a little since then, but, uh, you know, if you didn't have the 16 bucks, it didn't make any difference. So they moved them into our home, and, you know, these guys weren't just overnight guests. Arch T., who went on to found AA in Detroit, stayed almost a year. He was that sick when he got there. But, you know, it was fun. Gee, what an improvement. Yeah, what an improvement. I loved it. I didn't care if I had sleep in the attic. My sister had sleep on the couch. It didn't bother us because things were happening in that home. But anyway, they take the new guy upstairs and Dr. Bob would say, Now, I've got a surprise for you. You're going to get this shot of whiskey. But I do want you to take this little dab of peraldehyde first. <laughs> well, peraldehyde is a very pungent sedative, and if you've ever smelled it, you'll never forget it. And I can tell some of you have. <laughs> One of the guys spilled some in Dad's old Oldsmobile, and I've often wondered what the next guy that owned that car thought. But anyway, they knocked him out from 24 to 36 hours. Then they brought him downstairs, and it's a back-to-health program, the physical part, the food, you know, to, to get the vitamins. And here's the diet. Canned tomatoes, sauerkraut. Bill had an ulcer, and he thought sauerkraut cured everything. <clears throat> And K-Row syrup. Big buckets of K-Row syrup. And I think you'll agree that the early AAs were a hearty group. <laughs> now, there were no, no men. No men in the early AAs. Or, I mean, no women, I'm sorry. All men. 
There was one lady that came along fairly early in the program, but they caught her doing a little 13-step work on Dr. Bob's examining table with one of the early AAs. <laughs> and it upset their wives and sweethearts. So it was decided that perhaps they should stick to the men, at least for the time being. And I suspect that this lady set the women's movement back a couple years by herself. <laughs> but anyway, these were the people that could come to my mother and, and she would counsel them. And so it began as just a little trickle this miracle word of mouth then the media got a hold of it first a little article in the Cleveland Plain Dealer then Jack Alexander's article and the word got around that there was a doctor in Akron, Ohio who could quote fix drunks and they came in on the bus on the thumb walking dumped off by loving relatives <laughs> dumped off by relatives who weren't so loving. <laughs> but again, when the time came, the right person was there provided in the, in the person of Sister Ignatia, a little quiet-spoken admitting nurse at St. Thomas Hospital, a Catholic hospital there in Akron. And she and Dr. Baum prevailed upon the management of that hospital to start a little alcoholic ward. And for the first time in my knowledge, alcoholics were treated as having the disease of alcoholism. <clears throat> now that ward is still there in that hospital and still going strong it's not on the same floor that it originally was but it's there and it's still operating to this day another one of the miracles okay did you can you imagine now these guys didn't have any money and Bill and Dr. Bob thought well, wouldn't it be great if we had a bunch of dough you know they didn't have any so it was decided that maybe uh, they would set up kind of a uh, a big hospital for alcoholics. They'd even picked out a building there in Akron. It's pretty fancy, one of these old estates. And Bill could see himself greeting people at the door and Dr. Bob in his white smock, you know, welcoming in and treating them mental, mentally, physically, and spiritually. So they went to Mr. Rockefeller for some money. <coughs> and Mr. Rockefeller, in his infinite wisdom, said, No, money will ruin it. A miracle money would have ruined it. Okay, think about this. Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't have any money, doesn't want to have any money. Yeah, it's my understanding that you couldn't make a big gift to it if you wanted to. They won't take it. Miracle. The second miracle. Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't own any property, nor does Al-Anon, nor Alateen, and they don't want to own any property. And you know, stop and think what this has done. I think they're not custodians of valuable real estate. You know, some of our churches, I think, have fallen into that trap. They have become custodians of very valuable real estate, and so it has diluted, perhaps, the effect of their message in that they are forced to devote part of their time into maintaining these properties. A, he doesn't have any, doesn't want to have any. A miracle. Okay. Alcoholics Anonymous has anonymity. So does Alan on Alateen. Do you folks realize what that does? That makes every one of us exactly the same. Every one of us. I don't care if you've been here 40 minutes or 40 years. We're all the same. And you see what this has done? I don't know. We don't have this problem now, I'm sure. But the early problem with the movement was there were some people with large egos. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
I'm sure we don't have that anymore. Uh, but think now, it's impossible to be Mrs. Al-Anon or Mr. A.A. if nobody knows what your name is, right? The only time that I know of that we divulge our name is here in this group, and I think that's the way it ought to be. I think sometimes we get too anonymous. It's kind of like that new organization called Paranoia Anonymous. Have you heard about this one? <clears throat> they, uh, their phone's unlisted, and they won't tell anyone where they meet. <laughs> But anyway, think what that anonymity's done. Okay, I'll tell you about another one. Another one of the miracles that I've seen in my lifetime. God, as we understand him, that was brought in by an agnostic by the name of Jimmy B. And Jimmy said, he was also loud. And he did a lot of good work for A. I don't run the guy down, believe me. But he said this God stuff. He said, my golly, that'll ruin it. So to, to quiet him down, to quiet Jimmy down, they put in this God as we understand him. Well, now what that has done, that has allowed AA to go into the religions other than what we normally think of being practiced in our country. That has allowed us to go into the Eastern religions. Right? It has allowed us to go into the Mohammedan religion, that, that sort of stuff. And realize it, folks, those of us who practice what we call Christianity or uh, Judaism, we're a minority. But think what that did. Again, it had to be guided. Now, AA is in how many countries of the world? Maybe 120? I heard that the sun never sets on Alcoholics Anonymous. Now... And there's tens and thousands of Al-Anon groups all over the world. And it's able to be accepted. And this has happened in my lifetime. Now, Betty and I went to the first international in 1950. My father, Dr. Bob, was terminally ill, and he knew it. And after that meeting, he got up and gave a brief talk. Betty and I carried him back to his beloved Vermont for the last time. He knew he was dying. And we knew he was dying. And we had a beautiful, sharing, poignant trip. My mother was already gone. And I brought Dr. Bob back to Akron. And Betty and I caught the plane back to Dallas. I had a flying job at the time down there. And I never saw my father alive again. We were invited and went to the Second International in 1950. And that was the time where the spiritual people who helped AA so much, and Alan on too, where there, I got to hear Dr. Sam Shoemaker and Father Ed Dowling, these people who, uh, who had a spiritual message and were willing to help us, who meant so much to us, were there in presence as speakers, you know. And they, incidentally, the text of that is in AA Comes of Age. If you ever have a chance, uh, I believe it's Religion Looks at AA. Beautiful stuff. Well, Betty and I, as I told you, we didn't go to another one until 1980. Because we were busy doing our thing, leading our own lives, we thought AA was nice. Now, you've got to understand, Beth had poured her father into a, to a, what turned out to be an insane asylum to dry out in Denver back in the middle 40s. And he became a successful AA and founded a group in Clovis, New Mexico. And his picture still hangs in that little group. And, of course, my father was uh, instrumental. You know, Dr. Bob only lived 15 years after getting sober. See, he was older than Bill. Dr. Bob was uh, 55, Bill was about 40 when this uh, movement started. 
And of that 15 years, uh, he was ill, five of them, getting progressively worse. But in that length of time, he personally treated, AA-wise, medically-wise, without charge, over 5,000 alcoholics. I like to think of Dr. Bob as being Mr. Twelfth Step. Okay, uh, now we see, I, I went to the one in 1980, and <laughs> Benoit told you about that yesterday when I got up to uh, Al-Anon 14 uh, months into the program and uh, was to be the speaker at the uh, past delegates meeting. You can imagine what a greeting I got. They were so thrilled to see me. <laughs> oh, they said some nasty things. <clears throat> but anyway, I went to the last one in Montreal in 1985. Again, the miracle. There's, what, 47,000 happy drunks all standing up, all sober, all enjoying each other from all over the world. Just covered up the town of Montreal. You know, Montreal is the headquarters of Joseph Seagram and son. <laughs> and they have these flags out front. And the whole time during the AA convention, they flew their flags at half-mast. <laughs> Beautiful. So, you see, in my lifetime, I've seen this come from absolutely nothing to what it is today. And I suspect that uh, this movement will probably be the outstanding sociological movement in our century. I don't know this, but I suspect that that's, that's probably true. So if you're coming from absolutely nothing, look what's in store for you. Look what you can do. And again, I borrowed this from somebody that I heard talk, and I'm going to close with this one saying, don't quit before your miracle. Don't you quit before your miracle. Thank you very much.